This podcast is brought to you by JZK Las Vegas, the premier destination to discover what's new and next in the jewelry market. Join as the jewelry industry comes together at the Sands Expo and the Venetian, May 31st through June 3rd. Visit jckonline.com slash Las Vegas to register today. Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. Today, JCK's Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski will talk about the latest news, a weird story of the week. Then, Rob and Victoria will interview well-known gem dealer Joe Menzi, former president of the International Colored Gemstone Association, otherwise known as ICA. Hi, everyone. This is uh, Rob Bates, news director of JCK and JCK Online. And I am with editor-in-chief of uh, JCK and JCK Online, Victoria Gamelski. Thank you so much, Rob. In from the coast. I'm here all week digging in through JCK's archives, 150 years of magazines. It's been really fascinating. So, What era are you in now? Are you focused on a specific era? I started with 1869. Mm -hmm. So for those of you who haven't heard, we're celebrating our 150th anniversary this year. The magazine started in 1869 as the American Horological Journal, and then through various mergers, acquisitions, became the Jewelers Circular Keystone, and then JCK eventually. And so I've literally started at 1869. I think I'm at 1895 at this point. I'm looking through all the table of contents and all the content, and then... uh, perusing as many volumes as possible. Any big things you've noticed about how the magazine has changed? It's always been a magazine for retailers, to help retailers understand the business, to help them grow their profits, to help them understand the issues that are affecting the trade. It's always been that. Uh, The thing that differs, especially in the early years, is how much space the magazine devoted to literally treatises on things like pendulum clocks and you know, astronomical complications. It was always a a magazine for watchmakers since that's really what started the industry back in the mid-1800s. That's been interesting because it it really was a magazine for people who had tons of attention span, you know, very long attention spans in a way that we just don't anymore. You want to start off? There's been one bombshell story this week that I think you know better than most of us. You've spent time with some of the uh, legal documents. It, it is, of course, the story that the New York Times Magazine ran on Tuesday, and the headline was, the company that sells love to America had a dark secret. The teaser, the subhead is, for thousands of women working at the nation's largest jewelry retailer meant unequal pay, harassment, or worse. And by the way, it was by staff writer Taffy broderser Ackner. So what did you think? You're not done with it, right? I'm still wading through it because it's something along the lines of 11,000 words. Yeah, it's, Is that a, right? it's, it's a long uh, one. It's not short. Let's put it that way. It's pretty brutal. It's it's very difficult to read. There's a lot of details in there that are extremely, extremely damaging and extremely damning. You know, I've talked to the people at Signet about it. And, well, first of all, they'll say it's old, right? This is old stuff. And... You know, that's valid. I mean, it is old, but you still want the company to take a little bit more responsibility for it, to say, this may have happened in the past, but these were our employees who are mistreated, and, you know, we should take some kind of responsibility for it. The other thing they said is that it's not a quote-unquote fair portrayal of the company, and that could be true, 
Sure. I mean, I think we've always thought of the company as pretty conservative, pretty wholesome. Certainly in our communications with them, they're very, to the letter, not a company that in any way makes you think of the kinds of allegations that this article really laid bare, which are pretty brutal and pretty damning and upsetting. The uh, author at one point mentions that she went through the affidavits that were submitted with the lawsuit. So there's a lot of women talking about their experiences, and there's... 250 of them. You know, you read them, and the author kind of talks about her having this experience. I couldn't make it past like the 10th one. It was just so depressing. And, you know, you even in your most charitable, when you read such an amount of these kind of allegations, you can't just say, well, you know, it's possible these things happen. You know, at some point, you have to say, okay, there were serious issues. One of the things that's been upsetting to the way Signet has handled these things is I really do think that it's time to perhaps take a little bit more responsibility and say, yes, this happened and we're not happy about it. One of the issues here is that they do still have this arbitration going on, which has been going on for 11 years. One of the reasons you have these mandatory arbitration clauses is so ideally these issues will be settled very quickly. And yet this issue has dragged on for 11 years because every time the arbitrator makes a decision, it's taken out of the arbitration realm and brought into federal court. So all of a sudden, everything is kind of doubled, right? It takes twice as much time as it, as it used to. So one of the reasons, it seems to me, that they keep publicly litigating these quote-unquote old allegations is because they're still actually litigating the allegations. Like, they need to get this off their plate. They need to be able to make amends. They need to come out and say, some bad things happened. We're not happy about it. This is how our policies have changed. This is the kind of training that we that people undergo. This is how many um, complaints we've gotten. We're trying to get the complaints down. We're trying to understand better ways to handle these things. This stuff is out in the open. It's no longer secret, and you have to deal with it. I think the thing that this points to is maybe a cultural issue. You know, the problem of what kind of a culture does your company have, and how do you change a culture like that? There was one point in the article that felt like this summed it up, and this was something that pointed to this culture to me. And the the writer uh, writes, what emerged was a portrait of a company that the women said felt all-powerful and was often vindictive with them a company that women were afraid to run afoul of, a company that was at various times described to me as, quote, the wolf of Wall Street, but for mall jewelry, and, quote, the Gestapo meets Studio 54. I mean, that's utterly damning. And, you know, I just think that we're still seeing these articles come out, even though it's been public, these allegations for years, is upsetting, frankly. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, and I think it is and certainly was an extremely powerful company. And certainly people in the industry were extremely scared of it. I think sometimes when that happens, people take advantage. Ideally, you try to be honest, and you try to be upfront, and you try to rectify what happened. I mean, and this isn't even the only piece of bad news they're dealing with, right? Right, right. So yeah, so... What else is going on in Signet? They just laid off a bunch of people. I think their sales are having issues. Obviously, they have too many stores. A lot of it is that they just grew too big. I think it's a huge problem. They have a strategy called Path to Brilliance, and it lays out certain things about the culture becoming more agile. And 
omni-channel. But one of the things that seems, at least to me, as someone who's heard this spiel like a million times, is that you don't necessarily see the path, right? You, you understand what the goals are, but you don't necessarily understand the path. So they still have a lot of the same issues that they've grappled with for so long, is that they have too many stores, and they have too many stores in the same mall, and it's difficult to differentiate between K and Zale. I mean, the CEO was on CNBC, and somebody said, why don't you merge K and Zale? And in a way, it's kind of a ridiculous question because, you know, they're two strong brands. But in a weird way, it kind of makes sense because they're not that different. They're more brands aimed at basically the same consumer. And I don't think, you know, they, they bought Zale, I think, five years ago, and they've never really figured out how to differentiate those two brands. It's a big problem for them because for a long time they were king of the malls, but now the malls are dying. So you're like king of a... Uh, yeah, of a wasteland. Or the, of a, there, barren, a certain uh, type of mall is dying. Right, and right. It's the kind of mall that Cigna stores are in. I mean, there's a certain type of mall that's thriving, but it's not the kind where you'll find a Zales. It's the kind where you'll find a, a Tiffany. It's sort of a, a lot of stuff coming down on them at once, at least this spring. Now that we're on the topic of retail, I feel like one of the other things we were going to talk about today was just this proliferation of retailers who are finally embracing the secondhand watch market as a way to hedge against these other issues in the marketplace. A couple weeks ago, I interviewed a guy named Hamilton Powell, who's the CEO and founder of a pre-owned watch website called Crown and & Caliber. And he told me about this retail trade-in program they've got going with a number of retailers, including Burks in Canada, where- and I think Signet also, actually. Neiman Marcus was coming up. So quite a few top names, and I think they were gonna be reaching out to independents starting at the end of this year. But it's this idea that, you know, somebody walks into your store, they have an old Rolex, they want to trade up for something better, but, you know, they'd like to get some cash for the Rolex. And so many retailers don't have a way of keeping that customer, of taking that Rolex, trading it in, giving them a credit for whatever, and then uh, selling them something new. But Crown & Galloper has partnered with the number. And it, it seems like a no-brainer to me. I think this idea of recycling and... Uh, reusing is just so, so entrenched now among millennials, especially about younger buyers who, you know, that's part of the value addition when they spend a lot of money on a luxury item is I can sell this down the line. So why wouldn't you give your clients an opportunity to do that? We just saw yesterday the news that Les Ambassadors, pardon me, I don't speak French, so I might have murdered that, but it's a, a very important retail chain in Europe, just partnered with Watchbox, which is, you know, a division owned, or I should say, founded by Govberg, the, the very well-known retailer in Pennsylvania and Philly. You know, a real secondhand powerhouse, secondhand watch powerhouse. One of the things I, I wrote about this week was this De Beers buyback program, which yeah. is kind of the similar idea for diamonds. And one of the things that spurred that program was this idea that people weren't getting good value for their diamonds, that they would come in and they would get taken and they would get a, a fraction of not only what they paid for, but what the retailer could afford because they're just, the, the experience wasn't very good. Are, are people getting legitimate value for their watches when they trade them in? I think they are. It depends, I guess, on your expectations. I mean, we just chatted with somebody. I, I've, I've traded in things actually to some of these resale sites and have been very happy with how I've been compensated. I think it depends on what you think something's worth, you know, your expectations and probably how much your sentimentality is worth. Right. 
the example that Hamilton from Crown and Caliber gave me was that somebody comes in, they get a $4,000 credit, say, for a, a watch they've had for some time in their closet, in their shoebox, wherever. And when they opt to get a credit at Burke's, the credit is actually for like $4,400 or $4,800. It's a little bit over what the value of that watch is. So there's just greater incentive. You're you're excited as a customer. Oh, you're telling me this watch is worth four grand, but I actually get forty eight hundred to spend here at Burks. And of course, they invariably spend more than forty eight hundred. So Burks is happy. Uh, this is not a commercial for Crown and Gallagher. I'm just saying it is a sort of a prompt to say, do you have a secondhand business, whether that's you know estate jewelry or pre-owned timepieces? And if you don't, why not? Why not? Or have you even considered it? So we have the weird story of the week. I can't wait. So this is from Hypebeast. Do you know a jeweler called Ben Baller? I do not. He created a $400,000 diamond and ruby ring for Elon Musk as a way of thanking him for creating uh, almost 50,000 jobs for Americans and putting USA back on the map as a serious contender in the auto industry. So he loves Elon Musk. A few days ago, Baller took to social media to lament having ended up trapped inside his Tesla for about 40 minutes. Oh, my God. And he put footage on Instagram. I wish there was a joke. I'm locked inside my Tesla. I know I've been the Tesla fan. I've said so many good things about Tesla. But I've been locked in the car now for 37 minutes waiting for uh, roadside assistance. Um, The electronic door... You know, the door is handled by, if you know about Tesla, the door is handled by either the, the push button or the key or touching or uh, open the door handle and nothing's f-ing working. Pretty bad. As in, like, th- there was just a malfunction? And I the guess car there was just, a, a malfunction. That's scary. Here's a, one of the weird parts, okay? I'm ready. If that wasn't weird enough. It's all weird. After the incident with his Model X, Baller said he received an email from Musk's executive assistant who said that Musk had canceled a scheduled meeting with him. And she suggested the next time Baller contact her directly to resolve the problem rather than posting it online. So uh, yet another example of a poor behavior among corporate entities. Come on. I mean, this is not how you handle irate customers who are irate for very legitimate reasons. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't want to be locked in my car for 37 seconds, never mind 37 minutes. My God. In response, a Tesla spokesman told Autoblog there was no confirmed meeting with Elon scheduled and that Baller's recollection of the events with his Model X don't match what is recorded in his vehicle's log. Oh, Lord. Baller plans to auction off his ring for charity. Okay, here's the weirdest part, though. Apparently, Ben Baller and LeBron James are having some kind of beef. So this is what he put on Twitter. What if LeBron called Tesla, and had them lock me in my car last night. He got that kind of juice for sure, SMH. Oh, Lord. So there's a conspiracy yeah, theory think, now. Yeah, I guess. A muck here. I think it's, personally, I think it's very far-fetched to think that LeBron James, because just because this jeweler says bad things about you, would go and say, lock this guy in his car. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, so I, I reject all these ridiculous ideas. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews is what helps make them possible. Help spread the word. 
Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And now back to the show. We have a special guest here in the studio, the former president of the International Colored Gemstone Association. Been in the business for a couple of decades. Maybe more. Maybe more. What's a decade? 20 or 10? 10. <laughs> I think we say no, 10 around let's here. Let's go four decades then. Okay. Yeah, okay. And is now leading, which we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, trips called Gemstone Expeditions to some of the areas where they mine and recover gemstones. So we have with us uh, Mr. Joe Menzi, and we're very Thank happy you, to have him. Yeah. And Victoria, uh, before we had this interview, was telling me that you were one of the first people she met in the industry. Now, so this was back in my cub jewelry gem reporter I days. I remember very well. 2001, my first Tucson. And do you remember where you took me? Sure, sure. We had a big table, and we went to... Little Abner's, and That's we had a right. long table with. We all had potatoes and steak and chicken. Pork and the first time ever for Victoria. It was February two thousand one. I had just started my new beat in colored stones. Right. I was working for National Jeweler, which That's at the right. time was a competitor to JCK. It still is very much. Yeah. And it was a thrilling experience. I think you were, I can legitimately say, one of my mentors in this really unique niche of the jewelry trade. And you introduced me to a lot of gemstone dealers. Right. And you, over the years, have always been somebody I could go to to just run something by you. And, you Thank know, you. to kind of clarify things for me. And also just I could trust with being candid and, and honest. And I've always appreciated that about you. Thank you. Now, and you've actually told me this before. You Before you got into gems, you were a social worker. That's correct. And yeah. you work with uh, young kids. I worked with street gangs in South Yonkers, you know, teenagers. For how long did you do that? About a year and a half. But I was a young kid myself. I was maybe 19 at the time. I left that industry of social work, and my grandfather was a very big-time gemstone dealer. So he convinced me to come to work for him. I had studied in college, Pace University, accountancy, and he had owned some a company in Switzerland, and my idea was, well, I'll work for Grandpa, and he'll send me to Switzerland and do the accounting over there. Seemed nice, but he really wanted me to work in the gemstone trade. And, and did he see anything in you that said, okay, cheap I, labor? <laughs> How this, old were you? Cheap. I was, uh, I guess, I was about twenty-one. That was nineteen seventy-three, so I was twenty-two. And you were one of the youngest people there, right, in the whole business. Well, there was maybe. I think six to seven people about my age at that time. Most of them didn't last in the business, but it was a very much different business back then. It's very small. It says on your site you hated the job at first. <laughs> first of all, when you're a social worker, you don't make much money. And I figured this other business my grandfather was in, he seemed to have it pretty well done, you know? So I said, oh, it's a step up for me. I'll make more money. It's kind of cool. It'll be fast and easy to learn. And it was actually, I had to take a cut in pay. So it went from 150 a week down to $115 a week in pay. So my grandfather said, look, kid, you're useless until you can start making money for me. So the College of Hard Knocks. You worked there, you were kind of a, would you say like a gopher or an accountant or? Uh, no, I, I did their books, but, um, you know, what was difficult and uh, why I say I hated it for a number of years it's something you couldn't learn fast. It's no matter how much you tried to look at something and study it and think you knew what it was the next time you saw it in terms of price and quality, 
there were a lot of variables that I just couldn't grab onto. And everybody, all of the seniors back then, my grandfather's friends and other associates, would just say, look, it just takes time. You got to keep looking and looking and looking. And eventually you absorb it. And that's basically what happened. How long did it take you, would you say? I would say, well, I still do it this day. I'm still absorbing, to be honest with you. That's the dynamics of the business because it's constantly moving, changing different places to find stones, different rates, changes in economics. But I would say to be at the level of really understanding probably it wasn't much until I could start traveling overseas. And then you would understand the base price of things. So after my grandfather's company, which I left, and then I operated a company very large called Gole Bushel. That was Pearls, no? Well, Pearls and Stones and Jewelry internationally based in Lausanne, Switzerland. When did you get involved with the ICA? Was that early on or? No, that was much, much later. I was there in the beginning when it started, about 1985. You know, and I, and I was moving along and I'm learning things and more things and more things and meeting people and whatnot. And I found it very interesting. I realized based upon some other mentors that were in the business back then to be a player or to, or to be looked upon as a player that could communicate and give out information, you had to be involved with almost everything, association-wise, uh, groups. So I made it a point to join every organization possible. I'd go to every meeting possible, and I got to meet a lot of people. And I did that, well, for the reason of learning more, but also if I wanted to, you know, back then, I don't forget how old I was, 30-something, I thought to myself, if I had to say something important when I was 60 or 70, and even though I could be right about it, Everybody would look at me and say, but who the heck are you, kid? Where have you been? So I realized back then it's a lot of it psychological, how people think of you as, you know, are you good or you're not good? You know, so. And at that juncture, then I joined ICA and Paolo Valentini was president and he immediately put me as the treasurer because my background was accounting from PACE. And then they post me up from treasurer to vice president and then pushed me into becoming president. It was tough <laughs> because, you know, obviously we don't get paid for these things and it's a lot of work. And it's actually pretty expensive because we everything we have to pay for ourselves, all the travel, everything. But, you know, I asked my wife, would it bother her? She said, no, you're out of the house more. It's fine with me. <laughs> so you've been to so many, how many countries uh, would you say you've been to? I don't know. I think about how many countries I haven't been to. <laughs> Where it's haven't easier. you been? It's easier to name that. I want to know where you want to go. Well, I'd like to go to Argentina. I'd like to take a trip and take people into Madagascar. I think oh, that's I can't on the bucket list. You it's, haven't been. That's, uh, I would have... A lot of my friends are there. And um, I've done South America. I'd like to go to Bhutan. Mm. I mean, the concept of these gemstone expeditions gives me... That, I'm, that I've set up anyway... It wasn't a profit thing. It was more a fun thing for me to do. So when I'm not really active in the business, I could take a trip someplace and visit my friends in Brazil or Bogota or Sri Lanka or Burma. So you you take people on these expeditions. About Mm -hmm. how many people go on? It can be anything from 15 to 28 
about. And have I most think. of them been to these areas before? No, no, never. And are the people retailers? Are they? It can be anybody. How many have you done and who has ended up in the mix? Well, I first started it. It was an endeavor that I put up through ICA. And the concept was, at that time, still is, for me to get out more messages about gemstones, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if we visited mines and we would bring a trade writer, there, ergo <clears throat> Teresa <clears throat> Novellino, it could <clears throat> be you next, <clears throat> Victoria, <clears throat> and also we would bring a uh, fashion writer, editor. So we brought the people from the Rob Report, and they wrote a wonderful article on Paraiba tourmaline called The Big Blue. And I'd also bring laboratories with me because they never had opportunities to go to these places. They were dependent on people giving them pictures. They didn't even have ways to get the rough out of the ground. One thing that strikes me when I go to these places, I haven't been to a lot, but I've been to some, and I've mostly been to diamond places, Mm -hmm. is that you do, as you mentioned, these places are incredibly poor. Right. As is clear, sometimes the working conditions are very poor. Right. Often very dangerous. Sometimes. The workers are paid very poorly. And yet you can't say they shouldn't do it because they have no other livelihood. And it's a kind of a weird moral calculus you kind of have to make as far as dealing with these places because it can be very difficult to, to see, especially for somebody with a Western background like, like us. Yeah. So what you talk about is I think the inequity between how we live here in the United States and where they live overseas in these rural areas now, to them, it's the best over there. They don't know anything more than that. But one of the other things we did on these gem tours, we would pick something out in the rural community to give um, to something to give back to the community. So in Bogota and Colombia, at Muzo, we funded a bunch of um, computers, and we gave the school all, I think, two or three computers. And we built an addition onto a school in um, near Eric's Soul Mine in Tanzania. And we built houses after the tsunami in Sri Lanka. And I think this goes back to my social work, to be honest with you, because I like, I like doing those things. So I... I would make it an issue to always try to do something for the people in those areas. With regards to responsible sourcing, which Mm -hmm. is kind of the big talk, certainly in the business and in larger world, is there a way that we can maintain the economy in these places and yet at the same time improve the working conditions, improve the safety, you know, do the things that obviously I think we all feel needs to be done? I think they can be done on smaller scales. When projects are undertaken in some of these areas, you know, there's another industry out there that has NGOs, and their job is to pick apart things that don't look great. So their job is to raise money for them, more for themselves, to write about the, the aspects of an area that are very bad. I know in the diamond sector, they've tried to do so, so many things And there'll always be NGOs that start picking it apart, whether it was the Kimberly process or other things like that. And the same goes true for gemstones. I mean, because the areas are so poor, we can do some things. I think in terms of mine-to-market type of products where you hear a lot of that today, they want to see the from the mine right through the cutting center, through the manufacturing to the end user. In terms of tracing, you mean in documentation? Traceability, yeah. 
some places it's doable, and there's some companies that are able to do that, Brilliant Earth, uh, Columbia Gem House, but very difficult because of after the product is mined and it's processed, cut, you know, it all gets into sorting systems of gradation and... And then they, they pool it all together from lots of places. So it's very hard to define. I think it can be done in smaller parcels. Lately, we've seen a handful of big companies like right. Gemfield and right. Fura Gems, right. come into the sector. Right. Do you think that's good or bad? It's good and bad. So the good part is it creates more stability of gemstones, you know, because there's big mechanized mining. They try to be environmentally friendly. Sometimes they're not, and they get penalized because NGOs find out. It's bad from the viewpoint that they could destroy, partially destroy the artisanal mining sector. But, you know, if we take an area like Tanzania and Arusha where Tanzanite's found, and they had a great company called Tanzanite One there, but they also had a section where Block C or D, where there was a lot of artisanal mines. Those people would sell their products to Tanzanite One. So even though you have people mining outside of these big places, they find venues to sell back their products into these people that have bigger distribution systems. The big boys, it's almost like here, you know, is Walmart a big store? Of course. You know, they, they put the other stores out of business entirely? No. It's a service sector there that can still, you know, a hardware, your local hardware store. So big mines are big because they have a lot of funding and it's very expensive to mine. All products, gold, diamonds, gemstones, it's a hit and miss. It's, you know, you dig in, you're hoping for the best. You know, paraubitermally, you can't find it anymore. I've always been struck by the vagaries of mining and how <laughs> you can have all the money in the world, but it doesn't mean right, you're going to find the right. vein that, that is profitable or that you can Bingo. tap. Bingo. I mean, I actually went to the Tanzanite mine through Tanzanite yeah. One, that was my uh, very first in the mine experience, and it was a revelation. It was but an utter nice, revelation. That's mechanized mining, though. That was. I suppose it was technically, but it yeah. was still so raw and so um, seemingly artisanal. It was men. But you did know, you go down in the where the actual the people down below? I are got mining? into a cart and I traveled <laughs> at at like a forty five degree angle yes, yeah, into okay. a deep, dark, sweltering oh, yeah, yeah. place, crazy. and it was. Eye-opening because, of course, that and that was 2006. You know, this story of mind to market. Yeah. It wasn't a thing that people sought out in their products yet, but of course, it always existed. This stone started at this mine, and ended up polished Somewhere. and sparkling yeah. on somebody's finger. And that journey, and how many stages it went through, and how disparate that origin was from the end result was just mm -hmm. mind-blowing and stunning. And really kind of summed up everything I found fascinating about this industry was how these workers needed these jobs. These were good jobs. And yet how poorly they were paid in relation to what that final product earned, yeah. you know, and what it fetched on the market. It was complicated. It was nuanced. It was heartbreaking. It was joyful. It was all these things, you know, yeah. every emotion that jewelry taps into, I thought was represented by that kind of story in that scene. So yeah, when you talk about Tanzanite or any mine and bringing people through your gemstone expeditions, it really helps round out that story and gives people an appreciation for not only the finished product, but right. all the different parts of the industry that have had to sort of work in concert to get it there. And also, of course, the very people at the very beginning of that 
chain. I'm just curious in terms of these expeditions, how close are people that you bring able to get? I mean, are people getting into carts and going down below the earth? Is that like yes. a liability or no? Well, I don't make them sign anything. But <laughs> okay. Yeah. In some cases, they a lot of cases, they can go into a mine. Kenya, they can go into Johnson Mutama's ruby mine. It's a big open pit, more or less. Savorite and Scorpion Mine that Campbell Bridges had you can go into. Of course, now it's closed down. Uh, there are mines, uh, most of the ones in Brazil, the Emerald Mines of Belmont and the Paraíba Mines, you can go into. And you can go way down. Muzo, you can go down a 1,000 feet oh, underground yeah. in a bucket. Oh, yeah. wow. and, and it's, it's hot, hot, right? It's and hot. it's hot <laughs> and sweaty. I'm a little bit claustrophobic about it. So when you go down, you're thinking, I'm 10 stories under earth. Wow. And there's a pipe with air coming in. And there's water trickling all around you because that's how, you know, they're dredging up. And they use the water to wash out the minerals to find out where the... So you got a lot of things happening around you. So it's a little bit freaky sometimes how it works. And, and I've heard that, and again, I've never been to one, but I've heard yeah. that Tanzanite mines are a little horrifying. In some ways, they're very dangerous. Yes and no. The ones that where they... <laughs> so what's dangerous, there's a mechanized system that Tanzanite One had, and they have big trucks and vehicles, right, right. and you can drive in. And yeah, I'm and, not talking about those. Okay, yeah. so then there's these other mines and the other blocks that are... Right. The village sits up on a hill, and the mine's down in, below the village. And basically, you have a plot of land similar to what's this thing in front of me here. It might go 40 feet this way and 40 feet that way or 60 feet, whatever, and this is your area where you can mine. But right next to you, you have other people doing the same thing. So they go into the ground, they dig, and underground, they're crisscrossing with each other. So it's like anthills all over underground. Do they have lights? Whatever the light is in their helmet. So Gosh, what they're... happens for the most part in for, for that type of mining, they're going into each other's sites. They heard somebody has a deposit happening here, and they're digging their way over. In um, Tanzania, where the Savarites, like Saul's mine, they'll dig from a village, they'll dig a close to a mile underground to get into where the minerals are. A mile underground. That's terrifying. Yeah, just to get to the minerals. And how much are they paid for that? A lot of them, they take the tailings, which is right. washed out, and they sell it back to somebody. You know, do they get something? Yeah. But it's, it's not dangerous, a not yeah. a lot. Could you ever see that improving or... Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's, you know, you're, you're in these areas where, you know, education is poor. They don't have water sometimes. You know, farming is could be increased. And, you know, the people will do better over time. And, you know, I think if we can do little things for them as we move along, there's something to do. This idea of sort of can the gemstone trade do better, I mean, I remember writing about these efforts at transparency and establishing mind-to-market protocols, or at least mm -hmm. this was, you know, oh, well over a decade ago, yeah. 15 years ago, right. and it doesn't feel like we've really gotten no. anywhere. And, and part of the problem is it's twofold. Obviously, to do it correctly, it costs money. The money has to be put back onto the product to make a profit and keep moving. The product price against a similar type of stone without all of the bells and whistles of it going through a process is a lot less expensive. 
So what, like what kind people, of a premium do you think the tracing and or tracking adds, like 10 to 15% more? I think a little bit more. I think it's probably about 25, 30%. Significant. And it's, it can be significant if you're, you have to hit a price point of 199 or 299 at retail to sell. It's difficult then. So the squeeze is on from the retail side to have a product that looks nice and the carrot weight of the gold is correct and the stone is correct and it has to hit into this price point and they all make profit. For our 150th anniversary, JCK, you filled in a, a lovely little questionnaire, which we really appreciate. Uh, you don't remember. Okay. But here's what you wrote. Okay. We asked you how the industry has changed mm-hmm. and you said... Memo, replace cards to buy. Oh, yeah, remember Certificates, that. replace knowledge. Yeah. Trade shows, replace relationships. Right. Arrogance, replace humility. Treatments, replace conscience. Mm. Auctions, replace illusions. Yeah. And finally, the internet replaced romance. A, 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 a little, little strong. It's very eloquent. I yeah, very, say. Eloquent. very eloquent. Yeah, yeah. I think I did a good job on that one, huh? Uh, <laughs> a little dire, though. Would you? No. Look, everything changes. So I think, you know, I'll say right now, I was very, very lucky because I had an opportunity to see how old school worked with my grandfather and my uncle in in the industry back when it was very small. And I've also grown through in the 40, I started in 73. So I've seen a lot of things, you know, and change. And you know, it's going to constantly change again. There's always one thing that you can't be sure it's going to change. And when you think it hasn't, it's going to change again. So the change is good. It's, uh, you can't stay idle forever. I mean, I was saying to the people in my office that I guess it's a little quiet. You know, the phone's not ringing. And the guys go around me because they have these screens and they're talking to five or six people on the screen taking orders They're not talking on the phone. He's taking pictures. He has five accounts on the screen, filling orders. And it's how it is today. You know, back in the day, and I had to make up packages, and you'd run to the post office to mail it out. It would take three days to get there. Returns were very small. Today, it's fast and faster. But I I don't think we're dead in the water. Every year, I see that, uh, you know, jewelry increases in sales. I... And I think, you know, the area of color is amazing because now there's things that are popular, like these sapphires that are sort of a tealy green color. We would have thrown them out, you know, three, four years ago. Given, given to me. <laughs> I have taken them. They're greenish, but now they're hot as nails and more expensive than the blue stone sometimes. So you're always learning. Do you have a favorite stone? When I look at it, you know, some of the stones like a cashmere sapphire, soft velvety blue or you know, anything that's really fine looking. I mean, even an amethyst, when it's the pure purple of an amethyst, it's, am I in love with the stones? No. But I, I look at it now because I'm at a certain point where I can put a stone in my hand and go anywhere in the world and open it up and it translates to money. And then I can take a stone from that part of the world and come back to another part and again have a business. So things change all over the world. The dialects change and religion. and But a commodity like a gemstone, it translates to money. It's an asset as you move all over the world. I think you That's just summed up the history of the gemstone business. Yay. Thank you. There you okay. go. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks so much, Joe. Thanks so much, Joe. It was great to see Thank you. you. 
for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor and engineer is Levi Sharp. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.